You're listening to Bible Prophecy Talk on the Revelations Radio Network. Today's episode is brought to you by AudibleTrial.com. Sign up for a 30-day trial and get a free audiobook download. You can keep your free audiobook even if you cancel your free trial, which you can do at any time, no strings attached. Just go to this link, AudibleTrial.com slash Chris. I will also put a link to the free trial page on the footer of my websites. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris. This is the show that tries to look at Bible prophecy in a sober way using a consistent hermeneutic. In this episode, I'm going to be continuing the process of releasing chapters, or rather audio, from the chapters of an upcoming book called Anti-Messiah. And I'm doing so because, number one, I think the information is important and I just want to get it out there as soon as I can. Uh, secondly, because iron sharpens iron. So if anybody sees any problems with the thesis or, or any other issues, uh, please feel free to email me. You can do so through the website, BibleProphecyTalk.com. Okay, in this episode, what I'm going to be doing is playing part one of a series of uh, discussion of texts that were mentioned in the previous chapter. If you remember in the previous chapter about the Church Fathers, I listed a lot of verses that they used to support the idea that the Antichrist uh, would be Jewish. So what I'm doing is taking those texts one by one. I've taken five of them here, um, and I'll continue to go through all of them and, and analyzing them. In fact, there are uh, at least two occasions where I basically disagree with their view, the Church Fathers' view, and I think that maybe they were a little uh, overzealous in their in their use of these scriptures to to use as a uh, a proof text. But nevertheless, even in those cases, there is some information that I think is relevant to the thesis. So um, I would also encourage you to stick around towards the end of the podcast. The last two of them about the abomination of desolation, as well as the uh, tribe of the Antichrist, I feel. Um, there is a lot of information that uh, that I uncovered or just thought about as I was writing that I never had thought about before. And I, I think it's really interesting myself, and I hope that you do too. So try to stick around towards the end of this audio if you're interested. Without any further delay, here is part one of Proof Texts. Daniel 11.37, The God of His Fathers. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. This verse is interpreted in different ways, depending on a person's preconceived notions about the ethnicity of the Antichrist. If one has a view other than the Jewish Antichrist view, this phrase, God of his fathers, must be interpreted to be referring to gods, plural, i.e. pagan deities, as opposed to God, singular, i.e. Yahweh. Even certain Bible translations make the G in God lowercase and add an S at the end, making it God's and not God, to make it seem as if Yahweh is not in view here. I've even heard commentators say things like, in Hebrew, Elohim is plural in this case. But such statements are either ignorant of Hebrew grammar or dishonest. Take Arnold Fruchtenbaum's statement on this verse, for example. He says, quote, Any student of Hebrew would see from the original Hebrew text that the correct translation should be the gods of his fathers, and not the god of his fathers. This is simply not true. Dr. Michael Heiser is more than, quote, any student of Hebrew, having a Ph.D. in Hebrew Bible and Semitic languages. He points out the fallacy of Fruchtenbaum's statement when he says flatly, quote, Elohim can be either singular or plural depending on context. Heiser goes on to give examples of how to determine if Elohim is singular or plural, 
He says the word Elohim, or God in Hebrew, is a lot like the word sheep, or deer in English. They can be singular or plural, depending on the situation. For example, in the sentence, the sheep are lost, we know that the usage of sheep is plural. But in the sentence, the sheep is lost, we know that sheep is singular. The same is true with Elohim in Hebrew. That is, we cannot determine whether it is supposed to be plural or singular without looking at the context that surrounds the word. Dr. J. Paul Tanner, also a Hebrew expert, agrees with Heiser and adds another point in favor of this being a reference to Yahweh in his class notes on Daniel 11. He says, quote, The Hebrew term Elohim can be translated as God or gods. While either translation is grammatically correct, we should observe that the expression, the God of his fathers, is a commonly used phrase in the Old Testament to refer to Israel's covenant God Yahweh, who had long associated himself by covenant with the fathers of the nation. He goes on to reference a number of instances where this Hebrew phrase, God of his fathers, is used to refer to Yahweh. Exodus 3.16, 1 Chronicles 28.9, 2 Kings 21.22, Genesis 31.29, Genesis 46, 1 and 3, Jeremiah 19, 4, and Daniel 2, 23. There are more verses than these, too. I will quote one of the others so that you can see an example of its use. Second Chronicles 33, 12 says, Now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord, all caps there, so it's referring to Yahweh, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Think how damaging this point is to Fruchtenbaum's argument. He says that, quote, any student of Hebrew would know that Elohim is plural in Daniel 11.37, yet in other instances in scripture, the exact same phrase is translated as singular, where it is quite clear that Yahweh is in view, not pagan gods, while conversely, the Hebrew phrase is never used to refer to pagan gods. Joel Richardson, author of The Mideast Beast and a proponent of the Islamic Antichrist theory, somewhat ironically agrees with the idea that this phrase is speaking about Yahweh and not pagan gods. Though, because he is trying to make the case that the Antichrist will be a Muslim, he makes the case that when it says that he will not regard the, quote, God of his fathers, it is a reference to how an Islamic person's lineage ultimately would go back to Abraham through Ishmael. This, too, would have problems, because it, like Fruchtenbaum's view, is unprecedented. There is no indication of any usage of the phrase, God of his fathers, to refer to anyone except Jews in the Bible. The fathers are a very distinct group of people when used in this context. Often they are even named as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The very idea that multiple fathers, plural, not father, singular, is in view in this phrase is an argument against this because, in Richardson's view, there is only one father who could said to be a part of Ishmael's lineage, that is, Abraham. Abraham's son, Jacob, later renamed Israel, is where the patriarchal covenant line progresses. It is highly doubtful, then, that scripture would use this phrase, God of his fathers, to refer to someone outside the covenant line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which Ishmael certainly would be. In other words, the very use of the plural fathers shows that Ishmael couldn't theologically be in view here. I think this verse is an important piece of the puzzle in determining if the Antichrist is Jewish. It is one of the few instances in the Bible that argue not just that the Antichrist will be accepted as the Jewish Messiah, but that he really will be Jewish, and not simply a pretender. John 5.43 I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. This was a very common verse used by the church fathers to suggest that the Antichrist would be received by the Jews as their Messiah in the last days. This conversation in John 5 between Jesus and the Jews at the temple occurred just after Jesus healed the lame man by the pool of Bethesda. 
And that conversation may be the most blatant Jesus ever spoke about who he was and what he was going to do. He said some amazing things that must have left everyone who heard him astounded. He tells them, for example, that people should honor him just as they honor God, and that whoever hears his words will have everlasting life. He says that he is able to raise the dead just like God, and that God actually doesn't judge anyone. It is the Son that will judge everyone in the last days. It is in this context, speaking of the eschatological judgment, having just validated his credentials to do so, he essentially begins to judge the Jews standing before him in the temple, saying things like, quote, But you are not willing to come to me, that you may have life. This is where we find our verse, John 5.43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. I will suggest several reasons that Jesus means the Antichrist here when he says another, and not some other messianic pretender. One reason for this would be because the receiving spoken of here is clearly being compared to the type of reception that Jesus wanted from them for himself. The word for receive in the Greek here is lumbano, which often is used in the following context. John 1.12 says, But as many as received lumbano him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Another reason the Antichrist is probably in view in John 43 is because it seems unlikely that Jesus would point to one specific person as being the one who they would receive instead of him unless it was the Antichrist. We know that there are no records of a false messiah who was received by the leaders of the Jews or any other Jews of this exact time period, though there were false messiahs that would turn up in the coming centuries. In my opinion, however, none of these false messianic claimants were significant enough or widely accepted enough to warrant a singling out of one over another by Jesus. It would seem that the one they would receive is not only exceptional in some way, but it has the sense of being the last one that they would receive because of the way this is spoken. The fact that Jesus was concerned that the people of Israel would receive a false messiah in the last days is clearly seen in Matthew 24, 5 and 24. The view that the Antichrist is in view in John 5.43 seems to be accepted by many conservative scholars. One such scholar even adds the name, one who comes in his own name, to the list of the names of the Antichrist. And indeed, one who comes in his own name is an appropriate name for the Antichrist that has a lot of supplemental scriptural support. The idea could be a reference to the Antichrist being said to exalt himself above the name of Yahweh, 2 Thessalonians 2.4, Daniel 11.36. This is in direct contrast to the attitude of Jesus who came in the name of the Father, and it is almost certainly the reason Jesus words this phrase the way he does in John 5.43, that is to identify to them and to us that the Antichrist is in view here. This verse does not explicitly show that the Antichrist will be ethnically or religiously Jewish, but it does say that the Jews will receive the Antichrist. One could argue that of all the messianic prophecies that the Jews might be able to bend on, they would never accept a Messiah who was not Jewish, or at least claimed to be. Next we have Ezekiel 28.10. You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of aliens, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. This verse is often used to prove that the Antichrist will be Jewish, and I think there are some pros and cons for accepting that idea. I will list them both before coming to a conclusion. First, we need to understand the context. Ezekiel 28 is often grouped with Isaiah 14, because both passages share a similar pattern. They begin with a proclamation of impending judgment on an earthly king, the king of Babylon in the case of Isaiah, and the king of Tyre in Ezekiel. In both passages, it becomes apparent that it also should be taken as a prophecy of future judgment of Satan himself. 
In Ezekiel 28, phrases like, You were in Eden, the garden of God, and you were the anointed cherub who covers, I established you, you were on the holy mountain of God, seem to go beyond the scope of anything that could, even allegorically, be explained by only the king of Tyre being in view. Similar phrases like, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, and others force a similar conclusion in Isaiah 14. In almost every case in these two passages, the same phrases that cannot be attributed to earthly kings also happen to be aspects of either Satan or the Antichrist in other places in Scripture. In both of these passages, Satan, as well as the Antichrist, can be demonstrated to be in view. This is probably because, when proclaiming the defeat of Satan by God, it is appropriate to include a discussion of the Antichrist's defeat, because the Antichrist seems to be the primary agent in which Satan attempts his end-times coup. In Ezekiel 28, the idea that the Antichrist is in view seems likely by the use of phrases like that found in verse 2, which says, quote, Because your heart is lifted up, and you say, I am a god, I sit in the seat of gods, see also 28.6 and 28.9. This corresponds to the Antichrist claiming to be God and sitting in the temple of God, 2 Thessalonians 2.4, Isaiah 14.13, Matthew 24.15, Daniel 8.9-11, and Daniel 11.36. This brings us to verse 10, which says, You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of aliens. This verse is used to argue that the person in view must be a circumcised person if he is being threatened with being killed as an uncircumcised person is killed. The addition of by the hand of aliens seems to add further weight to this argument. My personal view is that while I find this interpretation to be a genuine possibility, partly because it appears in such an interesting context, I am weary of endorsing it. This is partly because, although the term death of the circumcised only appears here in Scripture and is therefore difficult to analyze, the general idea seems to be a prominent one four chapters later in Ezekiel 32, where the Egyptian pharaoh is told that he would die, quote, in the midst of the circumcised. Additionally, the phrase, by the hand of aliens, is applied elsewhere in Ezekiel, referring to the Babylonians, and in both cases it is clear that the person being spoken to is not Jewish. Even though I lean toward dismissing this verse, the reason I am not too quick to do so is because, after careful study of all the occasions similar phrases are used in Ezekiel, I am convinced that the various proclamations of judgments on these specific nations have aspects that demand an eschatological fulfillment for them to be completely fulfilled. In other words, the nations involved in this series of judgments in Ezekiel, where we find this uncircumcised motif, will not be completely judged until the end times. Therefore, I am not sure if the references may actually be literal here, given the fact that, in my view, in the end times, the Antichrist will actually force all nations that serve him to be circumcised, which would not just be in line with the Jewish view that, in the end times, all nations will be Jewish, but it would also be in line with the apparent pilgrimage system to the temple which the Antichrist institutes. This would also make sense of the very interesting correlations found in Ezekiel 32 and the Battle of Armageddon, even including the massive bird feast on the decaying bodies of those that are judged, and the consistent references to the pit being the place where everyone who loses this battle will be sent. In conclusion, I will not add my voice to those claiming dogmatically that Ezekiel 28.10 is a reference to a Jewish Antichrist. However, I think that this section of scripture is very interesting, especially because it seems clear that the Antichrist is in view. In addition, the series of prophecies in Ezekiel must be seen as a double fulfillment, in my opinion, with the completion of the judgments occurring in an eschatological context. Therefore, I do think this verse may give support to the Jewish Antichrist theory, even if not in the usual way that it is suggested. Moving on to the next argument. He sits as God in the temple of God, 2 Thessalonians 2.4. 
The Antichrist sitting in the temple and declaring himself to be higher than God is mentioned in several places in Scripture. Matthew 24.15, Daniel 8.11. I think this gives us circumstantial evidence that supports the thesis that the Antichrist will claim to be the Messiah. The rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem is obviously a prerequisite for this event, though it should be noted that a more simple structure like a tabernacle would suffice, as the Greek word that Paul uses in 2 Thessalonians 2.4 is naus, which is referring to the sanctuary, not necessarily the temple, though it could be a sanctuary in a rebuilt temple. For simplicity, I will refer to it as a temple. I also think it is the most likely option. A rebuilt temple and the restarting of the sacrificial system in Jerusalem is a very important part of messianic expectations for the Jews. They believe that one of the two main ways that they can tell if a person who claims to be the Messiah really is who he says he is will be if the temple system is revived by him. If a temple once again sits in Jerusalem, it would be an understatement to say that messianic expectations would be extremely high. I suggest that the covenant that the Antichrist makes with the Jews, Daniel 9.27, will have as some aspect of it a provision for the rebuilding of the temple. I will discuss this covenant in more detail later. In addition, the rebuilding of such a structure on the Temple Mount, which currently is occupied by the third holiest site in Islam, the Dome of the Rock, would almost inevitably start a major war with the Muslim nations that surround Israel. I will suggest in detail later that Islamic eschatology dictates that all Muslims fight this particular war that they believe will be preceded by a man claiming to be the Jewish Messiah and finding the Ark of the Covenant. Once that war is initiated, it will in turn spark the opportunity for the other main thing that Jews believe must happen for a man to validate his messianic claims to happen, that is, fight an epic war with the enemies of Israel and be victorious over them. In other words, the rebuilding of the temple sets the stage for the Antichrist to validate his messianic claims to the Jews and everyone else. I will discuss this in detail in the chapter called The Wars of Antichrist. I think it's important to take a step back from this and consider that the mere idea of the Antichrist sitting in the Jewish temple presupposes him giving a kind of legitimacy to the Jewish religion. It is true that when he does this, the temple will be, quote, defiled, and the daily sacrifices that were apparently going on for some time before this event are stopped. The fact that the daily sacrifices are stopped at this point is often used to promote the idea that the Antichrist will sit in the temple simply for the purpose of blaspheming Yahweh and disrespecting his temple, as if to say to everyone that the Jewish religion is untrue. I would take exception to this idea and suggest another interpretation of his actions at this point. The abomination of desolation, a name given to this event which occurs in the middle of the 70th week of Daniel, will indeed be the height of blasphemy. But this is because the Antichrist's exaltation of himself as God is untrue. However, I think that this event and related scriptures show that the Antichrist is actually carrying his messianic theology of the first three and a half years to its logical conclusion with the abomination of desolation event. He would not ostensibly be disrespecting the Jewish religion. He would be attempting to be seen as fulfilling it. What I mean is that the two main things that the Antichrist does at the abomination event is in line with Christian theology if the Antichrist was in fact the real Messiah, which he's not, Christians would agree that the Messiah is also God, and that animal sacrifices should be stopped when the Messiah comes. This is standard Christian theology, which can be demonstrated from the scriptures. In fact, there is even a Jewish rabbinic tradition that when Messiah comes, sacrifices will cease. In addition, even though a modern Jewish person would argue passionately that the Messiah, when he comes, will not be God, but rather only a man, 
they could no doubt be convinced of their error on this point by the same Old Testament scriptures that Christian evangelists today use to convince Jewish people that the Messiah was God and sacrifices should cease. This would especially be true if the person showing them those scriptures was able to raise the dead and call down fire from heaven like Elijah, as the false prophet will be able to do. I submit the possibility that what the church father Ambrose said is true, quote, Antichrist will attempt to prove from scripture that he is the Christ. I think that further evidence that the Antichrist is actually reinforcing his claim to be the Messiah with the abomination event can be seen by two other things that he does at that point. In Revelation 13, 14 through 15, we are told that the Antichrist sets up an image of himself. We know from other places in scripture that this image will be set in the temple. The people of the world will apparently be forced to worship this image under the penalty of death. This necessarily involves a worldwide or semi-worldwide pilgrimage system to Jerusalem to be instituted. If people are supposed to worship the image or be killed by it, it would seem that they must be physically present to do so. I would also argue that at least one way that the worship is to be done is by offering of gold, silver, and precious stones, because of Daniel 11.38 and Revelation 18.12, which I will discuss in later chapters, which further suggests that people who worship the Antichrist must go to Jerusalem to do so. I contend that the reason the Antichrist sets up an image of himself in the temple is related to his messianic claims. He is trying to make it look like he is fulfilling a very important prophecy about the true Messiah. In Isaiah 60, 3-22, Isaiah 18, 7, and Zechariah 14, 16-18, it says that when the Messiah comes, he will rule the world from the temple and cause all the nations to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to offer praise and worship. The problem that the Antichrist would face in attempting to falsify this prophecy is logistics. He is not able or willing to sit in the temple to receive worship for extended periods of time. He apparently has other things to do based on what scripture says about his career after this event. So this image that he sets up is kind of like a stand-in for him. He gets to have all the legitimacy of seemingly fulfilling one of the most important aspects of messianic prophecies, while not actually having to be physically present at the temple. This also argues against the aforementioned belief that the abomination event is somehow an attempt to distance himself from Judaism. If all the people are forced to go to a Jewish temple to worship him, it can be reasonably assumed that he is forcing people to conform to Judaism in some way. Another thing that happens at the abomination event, which seems to support the idea that he is bolstering his messianic claim and not diminishing it, is the persecution that begins at that exact time. Not everyone in Israel will see the abomination event as blasphemy at all, but rather many will apparently see his declaration to be God in the temple as scriptural truth. Jesus said that the abomination event sparks the greatest persecution that the world will ever see in Matthew 24, 15-21. He says that it is of the utmost importance for people to very quickly leave Jerusalem when they see the abomination of desolation if they want to escape this persecution. It can be assumed that those who believe the Antichrist's claim to be God will be the people that do the persecuting here. The Antichrist apparently tells everyone that it is now time to do away with the people that are not on board with his program. Though it goes without saying that many Gentiles will be a part of the group that worships the Antichrist, we seem to forget that the Bible implies that the vast majority of Jews will too. Zechariah 13, 8-9 says that only one-third of national Israel will repent in the end times. Therefore, it can be reasonably argued that many of them will, like many of the Gentiles, worship the Antichrist. 
So if almost two-thirds of the Jews in Jerusalem will worship the Antichrist, then this warning to flee Jerusalem at the point that the Antichrist demands worship can only mean that Jerusalem has embraced the Antichrist in the vast majority. There apparently will be enough adherence to the Antichrist's theology in Jerusalem that it necessitates a leaving of the city if one wants to save their lives. In conclusion, everything we know about the abomination event seems to support the idea that the Antichrist will claim to be the Messiah. He's declaring himself to be God after a major victory over their enemies, the stopping of the daily sacrifices, the setting up of an image to be worshipped by the world, and the great persecution that has its epicenter in Judea. Which tribe? Genesis 49.17 As we've already seen, many of the church fathers believe that the Antichrist would come from the tribe of Dan. We'll examine their reasoning on this point, and then discuss current beliefs in Judaism about the tribe of the Messiah. The verse that is often used to support the belief that the Antichrist will be from the tribe of Dan is found in Genesis 49, when Jacob gathers his sons around him before his death in order to, quote, tell them what shall befall them in the last days. When he comes to Dan, he says, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path, that bites the horse's heels so that its rider shall fall backward. A connection is usually made with this verse and Genesis 3:15, where the curse was given to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. It says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I am not too convinced that a clear case can be made to link these two verses. If for no other reason than, in Genesis 49, the serpent bites the heel of a horse, causing the rider to fall backwards, which seems distinctly different from Genesis 3, which says that the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is widely understood to be Jesus Christ. I think that Genesis 49.17 is an interesting verse, especially in light of the last days remark of Genesis 49.1. I also think that there are other interesting prophecies about Dan, like in Deuteronomy 33.22, which could ultimately be shown to be related to the Antichrist. I, however, feel that some of the early church fathers that used this argument might have been too over-eager in their attempts to apply Genesis 49.17 to the Antichrist, and I feel it would be irresponsible to be dogmatic about this view that the Antichrist will be from the tribe of Dan. I would not be surprised if the Antichrist came from the tribe of Dan, and it is, so far as I can tell, a possibility, but I don't think that one can make a clear enough case from the scriptures that I have seen. I think that there are, however, many interesting things to discuss regarding the topic of the lineage of the Antichrist. It should be noted that Jewish expectations are that the Messiah will be from the line of David, who was of the tribe of Judah. The Encyclopedia Judaica says that, quote, The rabbis agree he is of Davidic lineage, based on Hosea 3.5 and Jeremiah 39. The Jewish Encyclopedia says that being from the Davidic line is, quote, essential to the Messianic mission, end quote adding that they believe the reports that the messianic pretender of the second century, Bar Kokhba, was of the Davidic line. An example of how non-negotiable this idea that the Messiah will be from the line of David is to the Jewish people can be demonstrated, I think, in the attempts of historic false messiahs to at least claim to be from the line of David. We've already mentioned Bar Kokhba, but Shabtai's V, the widely accepted false messiah of the 17th century AD, also claimed to be of the Davidic line, though he offered no proof of this claim. It is difficult to overemphasize how ingrained this idea is in Judaism, and it seems unlikely, therefore, that the Antichrist could make any claim to be the Messiah without some evidence that he was of the Davidic line. It is interesting that due to historic circumstances, most Jews today have no way of telling which tribe they are from. The possible exceptions to this are with the tribe of Levi and the tribe of Judah. 
With the tribe of Levi, it can be demonstrated using modern genetic science. This is because those claiming to be of the tribe of Levi, the priest class of which often taking the last name Cohen, have historically had very restrictive rules put on them to marry within the tribe. This has led to a unique opportunity for genetic researchers that has demonstrated quite conclusively that there is indeed a very specific genetic distinction among those claiming to be descended from Levi that has come to be known in genetic research as Y-chromosomal Aaron. With the tribe of Judah, proof of lineage is less about genetic research and more an argument from history. The argument is that since the ten northern tribes were conquered and scattered by the Assyrians before the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom, and it was primarily Judah and Dan that were taken captive and exiled to Babylon, Dan was more or less absorbed into the southern kingdom prior to the Babylonian exile, and since modern Judaism is derived from the Babylonian exiles, one could make the case that all modern Jews are in a sense all derived from Judah and Dan. However, this idea has some problems because scripture in many places notes that representative communities from most of the other tribes resided in Judah before and after the exile, which in my opinion makes this claim rather difficult to substantiate. Despite this, the more important factor with regard to making a messianic claim seem genuine is proving one is from the line of David. There have been and are today many people that claim to be descended from the line of David, offering various proofs. However, in an excellent article by David Einseidler from the Jewish Genealogical Society, after reviewing the best evidence for these claims, he concluded, quote, All we need is good evidence and records that go back that far and give convincing proof of our claim. So far, available records cannot do it. Some individuals rely on tradition and faith to back their claim. More power to them. The rest of us may have to wait for the promised descendant, the Messiah. This is an interesting remark from Einseidler about waiting for the Messiah in order to find the necessary information about Jewish genealogies. He is expressing the Jewish belief that when their Messiah comes, he will reveal information about the tribes of Israel. Many Jews believe that it will actually be the prophet Elijah who will somehow or another reveal information about the genealogy of the Messiah, proving him to be from the line of David. I will contend later that the man we know of as the false prophet from Revelation 13 will claim to be the return of Elijah, and it may very well be that he will be the one that reveals some information about the Antichrist to demonstrate his having descended from King David. Whether that will be true or not is one of the many things about eschatology that we cannot know until it happens, in my opinion. One final point that is of interest regarding the end times tribal awareness of at least certain Jews is regarding the enigmatic 144,000 Jews that are sealed by God during the day of the Lord's judgments. We know from Revelation 7, 4 through 8, that these Jews will be chosen from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, with the possible exception of Dan, who is not mentioned. I personally view these 144,000 as sort of a priest class preserved through the impending trial for future service in the Millennial Kingdom, where we see that Israel is once again separated by tribes and have very specific functions during the reign of Messiah on earth. I do not believe that these 144,000 are all the Jews that are saved through the course of the day of the Lord. In fact, according to several places, the other one-third of national Israel must go through the day of the Lord in order to purify them. This leads to the necessary conclusion that these 144,000 Jews are only a small segment of Jews living at that time, and do not represent all the Jews that are saved through the day of the Lord. Back to the point I'm trying to make here. Somehow or another, the tribal identity of at least these Jews is known at this point. It could be that these men did not know their tribal identity before they were sealed by God. In other words, perhaps it is only God who knew which tribe these men were from. This is very possible, and I tend to lean toward that conclusion. 
However, it could also be that Jewish tribal identity will somehow or another be common knowledge in the last days. It would seem to be logical if the temple sacrifices are again started up, as they will be in the first half of Daniel's 70th week, that at least the tribe of Levi is known in order to function as priests. This could happen quite easily through a combination of certain records being discovered and genetic research. As Einseidler was quoted as saying earlier, quote, all we need is good evidence and records that go back that far and give convincing proof of our claim. So far, available records cannot do it. I don't want to make any firm conclusions on this point about the 144,000, as I'm not sure that we can from Scripture. I would only submit that Jewish tribal knowledge will once again be understood in the time of the 144,000 and in the millennium. Whether that knowledge comes to light before the 144,000 are sealed is an open question. But if it does, then it would be very easy for the Antichrist to prove his tribal identity, whatever it may be. Thanks for listening. If you would like a free copy of the Christianity 101 DVD, which contains 8 gigabytes of audio, video, and text of various discipleship materials on a data DVD, please go to any one of my websites and look for the Christianity 101 button. It's totally free, and I'll ship it to you wherever you are in the world. If you would like to support this ministry or any of the others that I do, please consider a tax-deductible donation, which can be sent by PayPal using the email chris at chriswhiteministries.com or by clicking the PayPal button on any one of my websites. Another great way to support this ministry is by writing a review of the podcast on iTunes or writing a review of my books on Amazon. Reviews figure very prominently into the ranking algorithms of both of those websites, and the higher they rank, the more people that can be reached. Thanks for your time and for subscribing to this feed.